The Electronic Intifada. Intifada. Intifada Electronic. Intifada Electronica. This is the Electronic Intifada Podcast. In occupied East Jerusalem, I'm Nora Barrows Friedman. You're listening to the Electronic Intifada Podcast. Since the beginning of October, there have been sustained uprisings led by Palestinian youth across the West Bank and Gaza Strip against Israel's ongoing rights violations, killings, home demolitions, and policies of occupation. More than 80 Palestinians have been killed since October, dozens as a result of Israel's policy of summary execution encouraged by its top leaders. Joining us to talk about the current situation in occupied Palestine is our contributor, Boudour Yusuf Hassan. Boudour lives here in Jerusalem and is a law school graduate and writer. And we're so glad she's with us here today. Boudour, welcome back to the Electronic Intifada podcast. It's great to finally meet you in person here in Palestine. Thanks for hosting me, Nora. So if you could start by giving us your personal analysis of what's been happening the last uh, seven weeks or so, in particular across Palestine, and how you see these uprisings being organized. Uh, what has been happening can be classified as unprecedented, at least ever since the Second Intifada, both in terms of the numbers of people who are actually going to protest on a regular basis and the repression that Israel is having to employ in order to crush the uprising. And even though there have been calmer days and there have been varying degrees of violence, we can say that the uprising has been continuing ever since October, ever since the stabbing attack that Mohanad Halabi carried out in the old city in Jerusalem. Uh, it's hard to speak of a solid organizations because many of the attacks are individual attacks that carried by individual by youth rebels both in Jerusalem and in the West Bank. But in terms of resistance, there is organized resistance movements that are organizing themselves without having to rely on the top leadership, neither the leadership of the PA or the leadership of any factions. And this is illustrated by the way people are defending themselves ever since Israel occupation forces are responding with attacks against families of uh, resistance fighters, of families of martyrs. And we have seen this in Shafat refugee camp, for example, when the Israeli army tried to invade the camp early October, when communities inside the camp organized themselves to thwart the Israeli occupation forces and prevented them from carrying a home demolition. We have seen it in various villages in the West Bank that try to uh, prevent Israeli occupation forces from demolishing family homes of families of the martyrs. We've seen this in Qalandia refugee camps, in Hebron, in Nablus. It didn't succeed all the time, but it showed that this resistance, although many, its major uh, mark is the individual attacks, it's also supported by a wide array of uh, people from the Palestinian society. Uh, even those who are not uh, actively participating in the uprising, they they see that something has to happen, that a change uh, has to happen. Many say that this uh, uprising is led by the Oslo generation. And it's a true in a sense that most of the attackers are uh, have been born either during the Oslo Accords or after that. And this is this generation that has a bit been demonized by the older generation that has been accused of not doing enough, of being uh, co-opted by the consumerist mentality, by the NGO mentality. It's proved that no, it hasn't. And it's the one that leading the uprising, it's the one that paying the highest prices and it's the one that trying to push the 
other uh, fractions of the Palestinian society, other uh, people, other groups to actually join them. And it caught many people off guard. The Israeli occupation forces is are surprised by the movement that happening in a sense that they didn't expect it to be as sustainable as it has been. And the leadership and even the more elitist uh, groups of uh, activists have been surprised because these people, many of them were thought not to be as politicized as the more prominent activists. But it's proved, you know, they have proved that they have loads of political maturity, that they are willing to sacrifice, that they are willing to relinquish the relative uh, advantages that they have. Because many of those participating in the protest uh, come from some come from good backgrounds and socially not many of them are students many of them are have good work have good jobs all of them have amazing families and dreams and a bright future waiting ahead still they are prepared to sacrifice all of this in order to to do a change they know that they might not liberate palestine with knives and guns right now mainly or with stones but they know that this situation this state's quo cannot be sustained forever and a change has to be created. A few days ago we were talking about um, how the media, the Western media has been portraying these uprisings and the youth in particular who are who are being self-organized um, and, and participating in them. And there's been a lot of talk about like, well, you know, Palestinian youth have nothing to lose. And, and I know that you took issue with that and I wondered if you could talk a little bit more about why you see um, that not not being true? Because it's empirically false, let's start with this, because if you talk, I had the privilege of talking with families of martyrs, and I say it's a privilege because you see, you get to know these people firsthand, you get to know what the, life, the kind of life that they have lived. For example, Muhannad Halabi was a bright student at Al-Quds University. He was a law student, he was very eloquent and articulate, and he definitely had many dreams. He probably dreamed of being a lawyer, but then he found that this whole system is corrupt and is inherently unjust. And and he can't fight the occupation with legal means. So the only way he can, and resistance for Muhannad Halabi was the most legal thing that he could do. Uh, Diya Talahmi as well was a very handsome, beautiful, and successful young man who also was a student, a fellow student of Muhannad at Al-Quds University. And he had an incredible family, an incredibly loving family. But also he felt that he he has to do something, he has to be part of the resistance. Uh, Baha Alayan from Jerusalem, he was a scout leader, he was a community organizer uh, in Jabal al-Mukabbir. Uh, he had lots of dreams, he had, uh, his family also was uh, relatively speaking was also in a good had a good economic situation compared to uh, other people in Jabal al-Mukabbir. And many others, even those who uh, come from uh, d very difficult social economic backgrounds, and because most of the people who are carrying out this uprising come from working class neighborhoods, either from in Jerusalem or in Hebron or in Ramallah, uh, in Ramallah uh, area, and all of these people have so much to lose. 
they have they have and they love life all every time their friends keep repeating to me that this I've never known someone who li- loved life as much as this or that martyr all of these people love life and Palestinians don't have to repeat every single time that they love life it should be obvious everyone loves life and especially these people but the natural thing to do they feel because they love life because they love dignity and love freedom and because they have it's it's precisely because they, that they have a lot to lose that they are taking this they are not desperate they are not just it's not using the part, politics of frustration to explain what's happening doesn't give justice to the uprising and if it's just being a, a frustrated guy here and frustrated guy there this wouldn't have been sustained and we wouldn't have seen these uprisings repeat self time and time again and what's important to know that even though many of the guys uh, carrying out individual attacks or going to protest, not all of them might be factional or belong to a political faction. Some do belong to a political faction like Diya uh, Talahmi, like Mohanad Halabi and, and others. But some do not belong to political factions, but that doesn't mean that they are apolitical. Many of them are politicized. Many of them have been politicized because of the occupation, because of the Israel's encroachment upon their rights. And many of them have have grown uh, more politicized because of their daily participation in protests. This is how political in involvement is uh, created. Th- these people are participating in protests and are carrying out individual attacks against Israeli occupation forces because they want to reclaim their agency because they want to enter, be involved in mass politics, because they want to feel like they are part of the decision-making that have been taken away from them. The media shouldn't uh, take away their agency by claiming that they have nothing to lose or by claiming that they are apolitical. Because at the time when they, well, all that they are doing is try to reclaim their agency and get back and be and, and feel that they are significant and feel that they are the one who are taking decisions, not just unelected officials doing things and deciding their future for them. You're listening to the Electronic Intifada podcast. Visit us online at electronicintifada.net or follow us on Twitter at Intifada. The Electronic Intifada. Intifada Electronica. We're speaking with Badur Hassan here in occupied East Jerusalem at the Jerusalem Hotel and Cafe. Um, Bedour, Israeli forces have stormed Palestinian hospitals in the West Bank. They've arrested hundreds of people, including young children and demolished many homes, especially here in East Jerusalem, as Israeli politicians vow even more racist and murderous policies day by day. Tell us about the incitement at the top levels of government here and Israel's plans for Jerusalem in particular, how that fits into the picture here. We always hear that the Israelis claiming that Palestinian leaders are the one inciting to violence. But what actually is the truth is that Israeli officials are inciting to violence. And it's important to say that it's not just the right-wing fascists who are doing that. It's all parts of the Israeli political spectrum, the so-called from the so-called left to the far right, are doing the incitement, including uh, the the Labour Party leaders, including everyone. It's the only difference is the tone with which they are speaking. Uh, 
just a few weeks ago, the Israeli security uh, cabinet decided that all homes of Palestinians uh, who are in, accused of carrying out attacks against Israelis should be demolished. They vowed not to uh, hand back corpses of martyrs to their families. They are, th we hear continuous talk about people who live uh, in areas behind the Israeli uh, apartheid wall that they will be uh, denied of their Jerusalem residency. And these are not just threats. Th by the way, th these threats have always been made. It's not the first time that Israeli officials are threatening with taking out the residency of people who live behind the wall. And we are talking about a hundred thousand uh, people who live there. It's not the first time, but they are using these events in order to further support this move and legitimize it. Not that they need to do that, but at least in the eyes of the international community. And what Israel has, what Israeli officials have done really successfully, I'd say, is exploit the terrorist attacks we've seen in Europe in order to legitimize and in order to somehow link uh, these terrorist attacks in, uh, with what's happening in Palestine. Although there is absolutely no way you can compare anti-colonial violence that Palestinians are waging against an Israeli occupation force with the terrorist violence that, uh, Islamic, that the Islamic State, for example, is carrying out in Europe. But Israel has done that. Uh, yesterday's move of the cabinet to officially declare the northern branch of the Islamic movement in Israel as an illegal and outlawed organization is just further proof of that because it came a few days after the Paris attacks. And, is, and actually, Israeli officials are unashamedly saying that the Islamic movement, for instance, are calling for an Islamic state and an Islamic caliphate, which is absolutely not true. Some Israeli officials, an army spokesperson even claimed that an ISIS flag was raised in Hebron. Although, you know, the Palestinians do not need to prove that they have nothing to do with ISIS, for example, or with all of these jihadist organizations. And they are pushed to actually repeat that all over again. But anyone who actually sees the protests, sees the actions of Palestinians, will immediately you know, understand that it's completely different stories and can't be compared. Uh, when we are talking about also incitement to violence, it's not just, it's not just you know, carried out by uh, right-wing like Lehava people and it's people from the Knesset, people from the government itself are inciting against Palestinian officials, against Palestinian politicians and the violence, the Israeli, the mob violence that we've seen as a direct result of that, it's not you, you can't separate the continuous attacks on Palestinian in the street uh, uh, from what we from the what politicians are are saying, and the fact that anyone any Palestinian woman, for example, who uh, is identified to be Palestinian either because she wears veil or because she looks Palestinian, or any man who looks Arab or Palestinian can be attacked just because of his looks. Th this proves everything. This proves 
means that this incitement is paying dividends for the Israelis. And uh, and this is f for Palestinians, they feel, this is why Palestinians feel like it's dangerous for them to actually walk in the streets because they can be a target of state-sanctioned state incitement uh, on a daily basis. What settlers, when settlers burned the Dawabshis, for example, in August, it wasn't an individual act. It was a state-sanctioned terrorist act that that is legitimized by states, that it's legitimized by uh, groups that are sponsored and funded directly by the Israeli state. So any attempt to do this delinking, to separate actions of the more extremist settlers from the government and from the political level is totally uh, not true and doesn't actually reflect the real situation on the ground. Bador, um, going back to a little bit to what you said before, um, many people that I've spoken with around the West Bank and inside 48 present-day Israel in the last few weeks say that what we're seeing on the streets uh, is also a result of the rejection of the Ramallah-based Palestinian Authority on a political level, though, though the PA's forces are working hand-in-hand hand, perhaps harder than ever before to collude with Israeli forces and suppress mass uprisings. Um, can you talk about the PA's role here, especially over the last two months? It's probably the fact that the PA doesn't have a role in Jerusalem which facilitated this uprising. When Israel uh, closed many of the offices of the PA during the Second Intifada, uh, it thought it, this would contribute to destroying political life in Jerusalem and make people in Jerusalem only think about uh, making ends meet and going on with their daily lives. What happened is that because the PA doesn't have an effect, an impact or a direct impact, let's say, whatsoever over Palestinians in Jerusalem, it has not been able to quash the movement. Of course, it has agents, it has, uh, it, it has its tribal structures in some of the neighborhoods in Jerusalem that it can try to control or assuage the youths, but it doesn't have direct impact on the youth. And this is why the youth uprising in Jerusalem, even though because of the Israeli repression and checkpoint, it hasn't been what it was at the start, but it's still continuing because the PA can't control the youth in Jerusalem. But in places where the PA has control, we have seen that n nothing significant has happening, especially in the, the uh, more urban cities. In, in the West Bank, uh, the PA, the PA is. It feels that it is in a very complex and difficult situation. On the one hand, it wants to collude with Israel because collusion with Israel. It, 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 you know, when we are talking, the PA cannot sustain itself without security coordination. Security coordination is not just a syndrome. It is part and parcel of the policies. It's part and parcel of the Oslo Accords. And if security coordination with the Israeli occupation falls, the entire PA falls. So in and on the one hand, is, uh, the PA can't get rid of that. But on the other hand, the PA doesn't want to completely lose it, its legitimacy. So it's allowing, in a sense, some protests to continue, especially uh, near the Beit El settlements, where the PA has continuously over the years prevented any confrontations from taking place. Now it can't do that because it will 
completely uh, galvanized actions against it by the people. So it kind of is allowing it so long as it doesn't, you know, so long as it stays under control. But in, in places like Hebron, for example, where the PA, due to the special situation of Hebron, where the PA doesn't also have as much control as in other cities, which controls, you see that violence, violent confrontations with Israeli occupations almost protest on a on almost daily uh, basis. You see that th- this continues. And w- when we are talking about security coordination, some of the things that we don't see is Israel, uh, the PA arrests, uh, you know, tens, dozens of activists who are active against the Israeli occupation, who are who the PA accuses of being affiliated to Hamas. And this kind of happens in the dark, because when we are talking about the hundreds of arrests, the more than uh, 1,500 who were arrested on October alone by Israeli occupation forces, we tend to marginalize or forget that there are activists who are also being arrested by uh, the PA as well. And the PA is really trying to do all it can in order to stop this, but in the same time and and coordinate with the Israeli occupation. But at the the same time, it's worried because it doesn't want to lose its, it's completely lose its legitimacy in the eyes of the, the people. So... In a sense, this uh, accusation by the Israeli officials of the PA of being inciting against violence, which is totally not true, kind of serves the PA to portray itself in the eyes of the Palestinians as being a victim, as being persecuted by Israel. At a time when when you see in villages, in, in areas, in, in you see through the raids of hospitals, the PA did nothing to prevent, to prevent these raids. Uh, some Palestinians would even go as far as to claim that the PA actually helped... Uh, uh, undercover units by Israeli of Israeli occupation forces to invade those hospitals and stood by while Palestinian villages and neighborhoods uh, are continuously being attacked and raided by Israeli occupation forces. Boudour, as a reporter uh, and of course as someone who lives here in Jerusalem and studies here in Jerusalem, what kinds of stories uh, have impacted you the most in the last few months and, and how do you go out and choose what you want, want to write about? and? And more than that, what should the role of reporters be in these times of heightened policies of illegal occupation and expulsion? Perhaps a few people who read my articles for the Electronic Intifada in particular, I try to focus on the personal stories of martyrs, on their lives before they were killed, their families, their dreams, their friends, to actually know the, the many sides that the many sides that this guy or this man or this woman had before he or she was killed, and because this uh, demands being in contact with the families and with the friends, the close friends of the martyrs, it always involves a lot of emotional uh, impact on me. Uh, I try to, because I live in Jerusalem, so sometimes my main consideration is going to places that are closed geographically from Jerusalem, uh, from either in the Jerusalem or Ramallah area, but I also try to make it uh, to Hebron and to Nablus and cover stories there because I believe that th- those people are probably more marginalized than Ramallah because not not a lot of media, especially Al-Khalil, Hebron, people feel always there feel that they are 
are marginalized and they are forgotten by the media. And uh, for me, I think it's important to be present everywhere for reporters, not just in uh, the areas that are more famous or more uh, have more reporters or more journalists there. Uh, and I think that we haven't ha seen this enough. Uh, probably the story that affected me the most was the story of Baha Alayan, the scout leader who was killed, who tried to carry out, who carried out an attack with his friend on a bus in a settlement near Jabal al-Mukabbir because I knew Baha, I knew his brother and you know when you know someone personally it always affects you more even if he wasn't a close friend of yours and especially hearing the way his father spoke hearing there was an incident when one of the g girl scouts who were tra trained by Baha uh, his his brother Hussam, Baha's brother Hussam came and told the girls that you need to keep working and you need to continue work even after Baha has died. You, life doesn't stop here. And he told her, look, I'm not, I'm not coming anymore, so you have to keep working. And, and she told him, what do you mean you're not coming back anymore? Th these girls have been traumatized. They, they, they still are not coming to terms with the fact that their tra trainer, their mentor, their teacher, the, the guy who meant so much for them is no longer here they respect his choice of course they totally do and they respect him and they are tremendously proud of them but they feel that no one can make up his for his loss uh, speaking with the kids there are many kids who were killed especially Ahmed Sharake the, the 13 year old child who was uh, killed in Jalzon refugee camp speaking with his friends was very emotional you see how how these people are try, you know, trying to live and continue living after their friends. You feel like, in a sense, you feel like these kids are too young to experience this. They are still children. They deserve to live their childhood. But on the other hand, you see that it's not natural. It's the natural thing for these children to protest because you see the lives that they are living. You see the constant threats of the Israeli occupation. And you think that the only natural thing uh, the most logical and rational choice for these kids is to actually resist. Y you listen to the stories that these kids speak and you see how all these experiences have made them grow up. You speak with, for example, families whose, uh, whose children's corpses haven't been, uh, haven't been returned to them. And this was especially painful, listening to all the stories of, m of parents who have been waiting for tens of years, for decades, actually to uh, bring back the corpses of these children waiting for a, a son's corpse to be released as if they were waiting for a prisoner exchange deal for a release of an alive prisoner some of them are still kind of not believing that their kids have been killed their children have been killed because they say I haven't seen a corpse I can't believe that my son has been killed unless I see his corpse in my own eyes unless I see I can bury him or her with my own hands when the ultimate dream of a mother or a father becomes to actually bury his or her son or daughter with uh, uh, her own hands. You know how much this occupation, this colonial system has destroyed our lives and has done so many grave 
violations against our most basic rights, even the right to mourn, the right to be able to carry out a big funeral, the funeral that this prison that this guy deserves, the right to bury their children where they want and when they want. When even this very basic right is denied, how can people come and wonder why Palestinians are rising up? Badur Yusuf Hassan, she's a contributor to the Electronic Intifada. Uh, you're also a writer and a graduate of law school, and you live here in Jerusalem. Badur, thank you so much for all of your work and for being with us again on the Electronic Intifada podcast. Thank you. And that's it for the Electronic Intifada podcast. For news, information, cultural features and reviews, and pointed opinion and analysis, visit us online at electronicintifada.net, where you can also post comments and sign up for our daily email digest. Follow us on Twitter at Intifada. Radio stations are free to use this podcast, and if you're listening on iTunes, support the Electronic Intifada podcast by rating it and leaving a review. On behalf of all of us at the Electronic Intifada, Thank you for listening.